This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 4th, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Has the troubled asset relief program TARP been a success thus far? Has it calmed credit markets? And on the cusp of the release of stress test results from banks around the United States, how much money is left in the program? Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Services Policy at the Cato Institute, comments. Well, and I think that's a good place to start is with the name of it. I mean, the TA is troubled assets. And as of yet, not a troubled asset has been bought. So the initial proposal was shelved almost as much as the almost at the time the bill was signed. So the first immediate action was the capital injection. So from day one, there was what you'd call a legislative bait and switch between this is what we're going to do with the program between what actually got implemented. So to focus on the whether they even the purposes of the act have been uh, met, they, they clearly haven't. But you want to focus on, well, okay, let's say you did put the capital in there. Has that even achieved what the act was supposed to do, which was to, one, bring stability and to increase liquidity so that there'd be lending again? Um, because the ultimate objective was we were going to remove these troubled assets because banks are too worried about lending. You know, they have to write down the assets, they have to write down their capital so they have no capital so that they can't lend. And therefore, you know, ac- economic activity stops because people can't borrow. Uh, and that was the chain of reasoning that was behind it. So um, then Secretary, Treasury Secretary Paulson took the approach of, well, we're going to inject capital in there. And that way, you know, we won't worry as much about uh, trying to value these assets because there was always consistently a problem of, well, you know, if the market says it's this price and the accountants say it's this price and, you know, other institutions and the hedge funds say it's this price and they're willing to pay this and they're all wrong, well, slowly I think Paulson came to the realization of if all these other sophisticated parties or mostly sophisticated parties are wrong, how's the government going to come in and be a more sophisticated party and actually figure out a price that's going to actually work? Because one of the other purposes of the TARP initially was to establish a price for these, a market price. Because clearly the decision was made, boy, the market's not pricing these. They're not getting this. So we're going to have the government figure out a way to price this. Uh, And like I say, when, when it got to the point where the Treasury Department came to recognize that they didn't know how to price these things either or even at best, that their prices were going to be as arbitrary as what the accounting profession was coming up with these assets, that that was abandoned. Um, And it was really thought that we could just quickly inject capital into these institutions. I think one of the first mistakes that was made by Treasury was in terms of its capital injection was everybody within a certain size. We all remember when the CEOs were brought up and it was basically like you were going to take this capital whether you need it or not. And several CEOs probably more... Uh, vocal among them was the CEO of Wells. Well, I don't want this. I don't need this. Why are you pushing me into this? And the thinking at that time was we didn't want anybody in terms of market participants to be able to distinguish because if you didn't take it, then the people who did would get tarnished as they're bad institutions. Who's going to want to invest in them? So there was that pressure for everybody to take it. Uh, and whether that was a wise thing to do, um, I think is highly questionable because one of the underlying premises of both what a lot of the Federal Reserve has done, because the Federal Reserve did something similar uh, in 2008 where they said, okay, you know, we're just going to start auctioning off rather than making people come to our discount window and borrow. Because that was always looked at in the past is if you went to the discount window, there was something wrong with your bank. Um, 
And so they wanted to try to get it away from market participants being able to pick out the good from the bad. Now, their rationale for this was you would look at Bank A, and if it's got a problem, then you're going to assume, well, boy, everybody else must have a problem too. Like if they got bad mortgages or they got bad credit cards, then everybody must have. So I'm going to pull my money out of all these institutions. Um, so there really was an underlying assumption on the part of the Federal Reserve and on the part of the Treasury that market participants, whether it's depositors, whether it's investors, whether it's other banks, would not be able to distinguish the good from the bad. A troubling aspect of TARP is that if the government was concerned that people would believe that all banks were uh, had trouble, why then purposefully obscure people from determining uh, which banks were having trouble and which banks were not having trouble by forcing all of the banks to accept this this TARP money? Well, that's a great question. That's the critical question, which is, you know, why was that the approach? And I really think that there was an assumption and a mentality on the part of Treasury and the part of the Fed that, well, market participants just don't get this. They're just going to panic and they're going to run, and they're not going to be smart enough to distinguish this. And, and I think that's a real questionable assumption. At least, you know, most particularly in the part of sophisticated investors, I mean, to assume that one bank can't tell another bank whether the quality of their assets, people for the most part, if you talk to market participants and you look at it, for instance, both in the case of Bear, Lehman, AIG, people were pulling assets out of those banks for weeks ahead of time. Anybody who had any sense in terms of the marketplace who dealt with these banks knew they were in trouble. Yet, a lot of these same market participants and counterparties had relationships with all the other banks. People were very selectively deciding who they pulled out their investments from. There wasn't a general run on the investment banks, and there wasn't a general run on insurance companies. Um, everybody else still got their claims paid. I mean, AIG is a, a rare case, and it wasn't, despite some problems in the insurance arm, people weren't even running from that. So, you know, the, question, the, the underlying assumption of market participants aren't able to distinguish between good and bad... You know, I think there's considerable evidence that that wasn't the case and that people have been. And I would also sort of argue, if you think that is the case, then maybe the way to go about doing this is actually to try to help the market distinguish it. And I think you're actually seeing Treasury sort of come to that recognition belatedly. The stress test we have seen recently, where they're all individualized. And there is a sort of debate going on within the administration and within the Fed over how much... Are they going to let that get out? Now, to some extent, I mean, you see it in the press already that people talk City, people talk B of A, people talk maybe Wells. Every analyst who covers banks is already parsing through who needs this. So there's also that uh, assumption on the part of the administration that, well, you know, we can keep information secret. You know, we, you know, we'll know who we, th we think is viable, but, you know, we don't need to tell anybody and we can keep that market out. Uh, you know, market information from picking up. But I, I, you know, that's a fool's errand. I mean, information, uh, you know, I'm stealing this this quote from somebody, but somebody once said information wants to be free. And there's really going to be a very strong incentive for that information to get out there. Uh, so I think that you're going to see this pressure with the administration trying to keep market participants from actually knowing who. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're going to find out when they go to market, you know, who is actually doing well and who isn't. Uh, so some of that's going to get out there, and I actually think it would be all the better that since you've done these stress tests, you've put the information out there underlying the stress test, that the best thing to do is put out the results of the stress test so that market participants can kind of figure out whether they think it's reasonable 
They can evaluate the banks for themselves, decide whether they want to invest. Uh, and more importantly, you know, part of the stress test is the assumption that if you fail it, you're going to go out there and have to raise private capital. Well, what are you going to do to convince private capital to come back? You know, for instance, in a lot of the bailouts, and it's really been arbitrary. I mean, you know, Bear, they got $2 initially a share. Now, then they got 10 after negotiating. Lehman, you got wiped out pretty much. Freddie and Fannie, you're still there, but you've got pennies, and nobody knows what your future's going to be. AIG, the shareholders got wiped out. Uh, other stocks have gotten diluted via the TARP. Uh, I would probably say if I was in the position of somebody who might think about you know, putting my investments, my hard-earned money into bank capital, I'd have to scratch my head a lot and figure out, forget me trying to just you know, estimate the earnings of the bank. What's my, what's my legislative risk? What's my risk of Washington coming in and just wiping me out uh, for no other reason? And this isn't sort of like, well, maybe, maybe not. It's really like, okay, uh, heads, I'm gone. I, you know, our tails, I get to, I do pretty well. You know, there's not much of a middle ground with this. And I think that has really scared investors out of the way. Particularly, the second part of the stress test is they have said, you know, Tim Geithner's gone out there and said, you know, if you fail – and you don't raise your own capital, you're going to you know, raise public. We're going to put capital in you. Well, what are the terms of that capital going to be? So you potentially have a scenario where you know, Bank X fails the stress test, the government comes in and puts capital, and then, of course, pandering to whatever public concerns are going on at the moment, you put you know, constraints on what compensation could be, you have constraints on lending, you come up with, well, you got to increase your lending by X percent. You know, and keep in mind... It was sort of the irresponsible lending and trying to meet numbers and volume that got us into this mess to some extent. Is there an upside to uh, the fact that the deal with the government that these banks uh, have cut and may cut in the future is so uncertain as to be just uh, untenable for many of them? I think in some ways there has been there has been some advantages with clear disadvantages, but the advantages have been that. Because Congress was so quick to, for instance, go after the EIG bonuses and to make such a kick, store, kick up a storm and complain endlessly, I, the the sort of danger of a slippery slope where you, as a regulated institution, you know, because you're regulated with, you took this capital and you have these other things that start coming down to you, we could have easily gone down the route where it really sort of happened kind of slowly, and that investors that you didn't realize you had signed a deal with the devil until you'd already signed it. Um, I think that that possibility has kind of gone away now. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of investors are sort of, the risk is just too big. And to some extent, I think that that's helped keep somewhat the reach of the government into these industries somewhat muted than it would be. And I, and I say that with, a you know, fully recognizing the depth in which the government's already gotten involved in the institutions in which it has been done. I mean, for Goldman to go out and raise capital and J.P. Morgan and others go out and raise capital and want to do this to get out of their constraints, if they had it easy. I mean, I remember one of the things that sort of first shocked me uh, when the capital injections were first done was that the cost of funding, it was only a 5% dividend. And given what the alternative cost of funding for these banks, it was really quite generous. I mean, there's usually old... uh, rule of thumb, you know, for bankers is that, you know, during a crisis, a central bank should lend freely, but lend at a penalty rate. Well, largely what the Treasury did initially was a pretty reasonable rate. There was almost no incentive, and it didn't go up until after five years. And even then it went up to 9%, which, you know, my my back of the envelope guess to what insurance, what inflation is going to be is 9% in five years might not sound like a bad lending rate. 
but that said, there really was no incentive built into it for the banks ever to work their way off uh, because of the terms. But that's changed. And that's changed not necessarily because of the pricing of the terms, but because all the other you know constraints and bells and whistles that are going to go along with it. So I do think that you know, in a perverse way, the government tinkering with this and causing lots of uncertainty has given an incentive for some of the banks to try to get out from under it. And I think that that's a positive thing. Um, the the downside to that is, of course, there's still considerable uncertainty in terms of what the rules of the game are going to be. And of course, when they get out from under it and they pay it back, well, that's more money that goes back into the TARP you know, pot. It's not clear to me, uh, you know, when we'll have a, I think all of us would have hoped that when the TARP was passed and that money was paid back, that, you know, that would go to pay off all of that debt that we floated to pay for the TARP. But that's not necessarily clear. Uh, and I would say that it's my impression that the belief at Treasury is money repaid to TARP goes back into TARP for them to spend on other things. So there's certainly a possibility that what they spend it on could be worse than what they have been spending it on. Mark Calabria is Director of Financial Services Policy at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.